0: By grace, by grace, we will stand on your promises, on your words that don't fail. And your word that doesn't fail is incredibly good news. It also comes with words and warning of incredible difficulty at times, even as our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan can testify to right now. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will give us this morning ears to hear what you're saying to the church. And that you will strengthen and encourage and prepare us through these words that don't fail. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church family. We are carrying on in our sermon series, which is based on the gospel tool, 40 thought units that tell the story of the good news of the kingdom of God from Genesis to Revelation so that we can grow In our understanding and experience of the gospel so that we are more ready and equipped to engage in the work of not just being a disciple, but making disciples. And part of what that means is that as we move from week to week, it can feel a little bit like whiplash because we're moving through a story that unfolds and has like changing seasons. And so I just think about how three or four weeks ago I got to stand here and give just an incredibly joyful message about the gifts of the Spirit and the way that Jesus works to reveal himself through us and um, invitational, warm, joyful, a delight to give. And this morning, three or four weeks later, I stand before you and I get to give a really sober message because it deals with the point in the story it deals with. So before I begin, I want to say two things to you about that by way of introduction. One is... Uh, last week, as we heard a message from Pastor Gina about the pressures that we face as Christians, uh, she talked. To, she, remember, she preached from two Corinthians four. Uh, our treasure is in jars of clay. We're hard pressed on every side. We go through different seasons, but as Christians, as believers, we don't belong to this world. We always face pressure, and we actually grow up into Christ through it, through the pressure. Well, now we're kind of moving along and talking about the the pressure that comes on the church or on Jesus' body at the end of the age. And we would be on Thought Unit 35 this morning, but we're actually going to skip ahead to 36 and do 35 next week. Because just as um, staff, we felt like I should give this message. And I'm here this morning, Pastor Jean is with Dane at the cottage, and she'll be here next week. And so we're flip-flopping them, but they're actually together uh, because they're because of of the way they they link. So I'm going to read them both, and then I'll read our text, which comes from two Thessalonians two. But I want to make one more comment before I begin to preach, and that's this: as preachers, um, bringing God's message or His word, we aim sometimes as the as the word speaks, we aim for your hearts to draw out uh, the love and the compassion of Jesus or to connect with his love for each of us. Sometimes we aim for your, your guts. We want to instill a sense of urgency or initiative. We want to a sense of responding. And sometimes we aim for the mind. The scripture calls us to be alert, to be sober-minded. It says prepare your minds for action. This is a sermon this morning where I'm going to speak to your minds, and um, I feel like I've got a particular challenge in bringing it because there's such a contrast for me between the bright, sunny day on Labor Day weekend, where many of us have thoughts of what's coming next, and the otherwise... um, pretty pleasant atmosphere that we live in. The times have been changing, but not too much that we don't still feel secure, measure of security. And so there's just such a, a polarized contrast between where we are and the message that I'm about to bring. And yet I feel, and so this is why I'm sort of prefacing it, that every one of us sitting here will at some point desperately need the words of this message. And you won't even be able to live without them. And so I'm calling you, or for some of us, it's our kids and grandkids that will need them. And so I'm calling us to stay with me and stay at the level of the mind engaged with what the Lord's saying through His Word. So, thought unit 35 and 36. Yet Jesus promises a reward to all who overcome. To all who through faithful endurance Persevere to the end. This requires being prayerful, alert, and full of the Holy Spirit because Jesus warns that his return will be preceded by a period of increased wickedness and great deception. During this period, the love of most will grow cold and many will turn away from the faith. They former Christians, will betray and hate one another. This period, this is 36 now, will culminate in the revealing of a man of lawlessness, one who will not only oppose Jesus Christ, but will also exalt himself over everything that's called God or that is worshipped. He will have power to deceive many through counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and will delude all who do not love the truth. Now from 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul is addressing a church that has questions about the return of Jesus and um, in some ways have been deluded because they've heard messages that Jesus has already returned and Paul's writing to assure them that he hasn't and to remind them of teaching he brought. And Paul says, I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, so this reuniting, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, Or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship Is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception. For those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. But had pleasure in unrighteousness. The word of God. So, m- many of you know that I'm a dual U.S.-Canadian citizen, and one thing that means is that I uh, somewhat regularly get asked by people about the similarities or the differences between our two nations, and I love to joke with them that um, other than, like, living in igloos and having to take snowshoes to work and not having electricity, it's pretty much the same. <laughs> um, no, I-, I do love to talk about how, I- I- where I move from is almost straight east from here, it is quite similar in many ways. But there's some key differences, and I won't get into all of them, but one of them one of those key differences is in Canada we don't have hurricane season. We didn't talk about it, uh, but moving to Michigan and I guess there's just a whole lot of us that pay attention to what happens in Florida from Michigan right um, i've I've keyed into this yearly cycle of hey, when we hit this time of year, certain bad storms start to to gear up and get move in. And every year I watch the same pattern unfold. There are certain like really bad category, you know, three, four, five hurricane storms where you'll have mass coordinated efforts to move people out of an area like Hurricane Ida, right? Where you've got this warning system. You not only have Um, preparation on the ground, but then you've got this coordinated warning, move out of this area. This is where it's going to hit. If you live here, you should move because you cannot live through this. You cannot sustain these types of winds. And every year, I watch many people respond, but not all of them. I watch people think they can ride out the storm, and every year, Tragedy, people die because they don't heed the warning. Love, loving concern, motivates warning because we cannot survive what we're not properly prepared for. We can't survive what we're not properly prepared for. In our text for this morning, Paul's writing about something so serious that Christians won't survive if they're not properly prepared. He's writing about the end of this age, or the period that immediately precedes Jesus' return. And we might immediately wonder, why should I be concerned about the end of this age? I'm just trying to get through morning sickness, or all-day sickness, as it is in your case, right? Or I'm just trying to get through... Get launching into a new ministry season. I'm just trying to get through a move. I'm just trying to get through, you name what, what the immediate future holds. Uh, I want to make it safely to retirement or I, I want to get through this next season with the kids or the grandkids. I mean, we've got, we, we, we live with sort of an, a focus on what's coming next and after that and why should I on this morning be thinking about the end of the age? Well, I want to start to answer that by saying that I think the most striking verse in the section of 2 Thessalonians that I just read is verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Huh? So even though these believers are brand new Christians, and even though Paul's only spent a short amount of time with them, he thought it was so important to teach them about what was coming at the end of the age that he included it in his basics of the Christian faith, his introduction to the kingdom of God. He's already warned them. And actually, he's no different than the author of Hebrews, who in chapter 6 says, let's leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation, and here's his foundation, of repentance from acts that lead to death, or useless rituals, faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So two of his six foundational things deal with the end of the age. Why would these early Christian apostles place such an emphasis on the end of the age? For every believer, two, Two reasons. First, they were students of Scripture. And they knew the messianic prophecies of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, a place of peace and justice and righteousness and shalom and the glory of God filling the earth would not be fulfilled until the return of the Messiah. So in Acts 3, Right as the gospel is beginning to be preached, we hear Peter stand up and he says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that He may send the Christ that has been appointed for you, Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything As he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So the hope of the church is always future oriented. It always hinges, even from before Jesus, it always hinges and looks forward to the return of Jesus. And so they're, they're preaching repentance and they're, they're preaching welcome into a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom from God that's come in part isn 't fully here is still needs to come, and there there's this the the this, this sense in which the gospel always looks forward to always anticipates always longs for and is unfulfilled until Jesus Christ returns so as believers we 're never to come to terms with this world as it is we 're never to be um, satisfied, but we 're always to be longing for working towards lifting up our eyes toward Christ's return. This is key to the message of the gospel. And it's the first reason why Paul and the others would include clear teaching for new Christians about the end of the age. But there's a second and there's a very important reason that Jesus, that, that, that is this. Why they taught it. Because Jesus clearly taught that the period immediately preceding His return will be marked by great suffering, By hardship, persecution, death, hatred, increase of wickedness, love of many believers growing cold, and again, deep deception. And so because Jesus taught that, a part of faithful Christian leadership in any generation, of anybody who's transmitting the faith, And seeking to grow other believers up in Jesus is preparation to be able to sustain these kinds of hardships. Because again, we cannot sustain what we aren't prepared for. And so Paul says, look, I don't want you to be quickly shaken or alarmed by a spirit or spoken word or a letter. I've already told you about these things. And then he recaps This is what you need to look for, be prepared for, ahead of Jesus' return. He says two things are going to happen. First, a rebellion will occur. And second, a man of rebellion or lawlessness will be revealed. The word rebellion that Paul uses here is the Greek word apostia. And it's where we get our word apostasy, which means to turn away or to deny the faith. So when Paul says that a rebellion needs to occur before a man of rebellion or lawlessness is revealed, he's not talking about the world. He's not talking about a world that's already in rebellion against God. He's talking about from within the church. He's talking about a mass of people falling away from the faith. He's pointing back to Jesus' teaching, Many will stumble, many will be offended, many will fall away, the love of of most will grow cold. In other words, there is something that's going to unfold which will be a catalyst for many believers actually walking away from biblical faith in Jesus Christ and that something will contain within it the seed of rebellion against God's good and holy will. It will contain within it a form of lawlessness. Okay, So it seems like because a form of lawlessness grows up within the church, that that, that rebellion or that lawlessness growing up inside the church actually kind of paves the way for a person who embodies in himself that lawlessness a man of lawlessness, to rise to a position of global leadership, perhaps even rising up from within the footprint of the church. Why would I say this? In part because Paul teaches that this person will be kept hidden until a time comes for him to be revealed. He says the power of lawlessness is already at work, but that this man who embodies lawlessness will be revealed in his time. What does that mean in his time? It means there's going to be a time or a season where it's, it's ripe for someone who embodies lawlessness to actually rise to a position of leadership because the ground has already been set within the church to support Something like that, okay? This person's coming, says Paul, will be by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So at the heart of this person's rise to leadership is going to be deceptive power, or false signs. In other words, they will have the ability to perform signs or miracles or wonders that look like they are from God. In other words, they'll be able to replicate things that God does. Right? So, three or four weeks ago, we are talking about the gifts of the Spirit. There is genuine power from the Holy Spirit. Paul says the kingdom of God's not a matter of talk, but of power. And it involves talk as well. Obviously, he would say the preaching of the gospel is very important you got to put all of his words together. But as Christians, we have authority in Jesus. We have power. We we are learning to move in the gifts and the power of the Spirit to advance the kingdom. God does things through us that we couldn't do, supernatural things, miracles. And Paul is saying this person who embodies lawlessness will have those same abilities. They'll just be false signs. So maybe they'll be able to heal the sick. Maybe they will be able to have words of knowledge and prophetic insight and people will be wowed by them because of the power they have. Just the same way that the magicians in Pharaoh's court had genuine, or not genuine in terms of origin, but had real power, demonically inspired power to be able to replicate what Moses was doing in the power of the Spirit. It'll be false because of its origin. And we might think, well, that'll be easy to spot. What are we worried about? I don't have to be that concerned. I don't really have to do a whole lot different to prepare for this possibility. But let me warn you or warn us with this thought. I don't think any of the Christians who fall away from Jesus during this great apostasy are going to wake up one day and say, you know what, I think today I'm going to deny my true faith and I'm going to set myself on a trajectory for eternal separation from God. And all that's good. So millions will be led astray. And I don't think one person among those millions will wake up in the morning and say, today's the day I'm going to be deluded Today's the day I'm going to choose to turn away from that which saves me and toward hell. They'll fall away because they're not properly prepared for what they face because they stop, says Paul, loving the truth and so become captives to deception. That's the key word here. Deception, by its very nature, involves trickery. And so to deceive is to pretend to be true while actually cloaking evil inside inside of what you're showing to people. I want to give you an example of how I see this playing out within the church right now. And in giving the example, I am not claiming that the deception which causes I'm not claiming that what I'm going to say to you is the deception which causes great apostasy. But I also want you to hear that I believe that it could possibly become that, that it has within it the seeds of possibility because of the amount of people that are already being led astray from biblical faith in Jesus Christ. Last year when I preached four sermons on Matthew 24, I spoke in some depth about the issue of human sexuality. And I'm not going to go into that depth here, but let me simply reiterate that while the gospel calls us To have deep, deep care and compassion for those who experience brokenness and confusion regarding their sexual identities. The gospel is also very clear about these things regarding human sexuality. First, homosexual attraction is not a part of God's good creation, but rather a result of the fall into sin and of human brokenness that extends to every sphere of our existence. Second, God never speaks in Scripture of homosexual activity in a positive way, but always condemns the activity as unrighteous. Further, or third, God promises that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings transformation into every sphere of our existence, including all aspects of our sexual lives. And so, regardless of how much compassion we have for people and their brokenness, including ourselves, and we ought to have all the compassion of Jesus, we never receive God's permission to label consequences of the fall as good and holy. Nor do we receive permission to bless sinful activity by calling it righteous. If we do these things, we are not only opposing God, But we're also distorting truth and we're promoting lawlessness or rebellion, which, friends, is exactly what has happened in one mainline Christian denomination after another over the last decade as the the hurricane force winds of cultural pressure have begun to mount and to climb steadily higher and higher. We have watched them, like trees, snap, snap, snap under the weight of that pressure. And the result of so many of them yielding to the pressure is colossal. The church now appears before the world confused. We appear bipolar and unable to give a clear witness to Jesus Christ Does Jesus Christ have great empathy and compassion for us in our brokenness, yet call us to a sexual holiness that does not include homosexual activity? Or does Jesus Christ celebrate and bless every different sexual identity as a unique part of God's good creation, blessing everyone to live as they feel true to their identity? Because the church has struggled to give a clear answer, the result of that confusion or that lack of clarity is millions, including many millions of believers, being caught up in a web of deception that is leading people away from true biblical faith in Jesus Christ. Faith which requires repentance, dying to self, And carrying a cross daily. And so friends, because the winds of cultural pressure have so increased over the last decade, we are now only several steps removed from this possibility. That if we preach this truth as biblical, or if we share in a small group Bible study as we're discipling someone, We may now or soon be accused of hate speech and we may be litigated or possibly even imprisoned for failing to comply. I said several steps removed from that. Now, you might hear that and you think, oh, Pastor Dave, that just sounds alarmist. I mean, can you really hear in America the land of freedom? That might seem very unlikely to you, but I want to tell you this morning that it doesn't seem unlikely to the Christian author, editor, and New York Times journalist Rod Dreher. Last year, Dreher released a book called Live Not by Lies, in which he illustrates what he calls a developing soft tyranny in the West. Dreher says he sees this soft tyranny in a growing unwillingness on the part of the government, media, big tech, and increasingly culture, to tolerate, unwillingness to tolerate any disagreement with the prevailing narrative, particularly regarding how we achieve justice, equity, and inclusion. All very good things, but things which they describe very differently than the gospel would describe, right? The gospel's means for justice is through the cross of Jesus Christ, the, the gospel includes everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is a place where there's neither Jew, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. But outside of the church and of the gospel, there is a growing narrative about how those things are to come about and what they in fact mean. And if you dare to challenge that narrative, canceled, canceled, cancel culture. You know, when it first started to happen, we kind of smiled at it like, Oh, that's so silly, right? Like that you'd cancel somebody for doing that, but it's gone on and on. And executives of major corporations have been canceled for the smallest of reasons people are canceled left right and center right now that is a a scary thing to be developing so without taking sides dreyer sounds this alarm that he says actually caught him by surprise when he began this is what prompted him to write the book he began to be contacted by survivors of tyranny in communist countries each of whom expressed deep distress over the way they saw parallels to what they experienced 50 plus years ago beginning to take shape in the United States. Now if there's anything that we can learn from historical movements under which the masses are led astray by deceptive philosophies and tyrannical leaders and then die millions of starvation and prison camp rehabilitation because they don't agree with the tyrannical leader or the prevailing narrative. If there's anything we can learn from them, it's that when the conditions are right or rather horribly wrong, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. I don't know how many of you are students of, of Eastern history, Chinese history, but you all know that I and Anne have a love for China. And in particular, I've studied 20th century Chinese history. Millions upon millions of human beings died of starvation and malnutrition while Mao was selling his wheat to Russia. Millions of people died in labor camps, separated from their families, because they refused to acknowledge the prevailing narrative or because they were capitalist rotors or you name it, whatever it is. Anyone who's a student of history knows that when tyranny and deceptive philosophies begin to take root, the danger is real. And so regardless of whether we are actually going to experience this kind of increasing pressure or not, my role this morning is to warn and to prepare you in much the same way that Paul prepared the Thessalonians because the persecution that they endured or experienced under Roman emperors who embodied this lawlessness is the same persecution that our brothers and sisters have experienced all through the ages and even right now in many other nations. And so whether we're entering a season of similar pressure or not, we still have to be ready. We have to be prepared to stand up to the hurricane force wind of evil or of darkness as it comes upon us. Because again, we cannot survive what we're not prepared for. And the time to prepare is when the sky is sunshining. If you're preparing, when you see the storm moving in, it's too late. You can't prepare to not have your shop Blown through by a hurricane and put boards up on your windows when you see that hurricane moving in. You've gotta hear of it way off in the distance and start buying your boards and putting them up. The time to prepare is while the sun is bright in the sky. And so we prepare by noticing that Paul says in this text, they perish. They don't survive. They die an eternally agonizing death because they refuse to love the truth. And so be saved. Now I want you to hear this. Refusing to love the truth indicates they've been presented with the truth. They have the option and the ability to seek out and to find the truth and that they choose not to highly value or to love it. These are not victims. Right? Every human being has the option of seeking truth. Any rejection of truth is an acceptance of deception to love god is to love the truth because god is pure god is holy there is no darkness no deception no untruth in him and when we begin to embrace and even to love that which isn't true we become deluded and paul says god will even send Or allow this delusion to grow. Not because he wants people to perish. He tells us elsewhere he wants no one to perish. But because he desires all to love and cherish the purity of truth. Even as he is true. And to reject truth is to reject God. And so the Christians who will sustain the hurricane force winds of this season. Are the ones whose root systems are not shallow but deep, deep, deeply embedded in the truth, as Jan was calling us to earlier. Deep, deep roots in the gospel. Deep, deep roots in the word of God that's infallible and authoritative. The people who, as Isaiah says, God actually esteems and lifts up because they're humble and they're contrite, really sorry ongoingly for their sin, and they tremble before his word; they tremble before it. But also, people who seek and value truth in all things. So, a Christian journalist friend of mine's expressed deep dismay over the last couple of years at how he sees Christians both dismissing things that don't fit their political narrative without investigating. And he's talking about all across the spectrum, wherever you are. And he's all, and he also is. Um, uh, d- dismayed over the way that Christians endorse things that do fit their political narrative without investigating deeper or searching for truth. Hear this, any deception that we welcome in any form, any deception that we endorse or we participate with functions to obscure our vision and then to give Satan, the great deceiver, something of a foothold within us. So we must learn to seek and to cherish and to embrace all truth and to humble ourselves before it continuously as a means of possibly having to sustain this season or one like it. We hunger for the truth. And then Paul says, there's one other thing that we... that we." Um, Hunger for. He says, well, he says it the opposite way. He says, they perish because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Which I believe is an outflow of deception, right? A love for truth always leads to a love for righteousness. If you love truth, you love and you long for what's good and holy and pure and beautiful. So we also prepare to sustain this pressure by praying for and nurturing a love for righteousness. Which means this. We don't give way to the slow creep of welcoming forms of entertainment which include more and more of the world's vocabulary and values. That's not a love for righteousness. We do everything seeking to please Jesus Christ. The bride does everything with the bridegroom in mind. He who died to make us pure, holy, spotless, deserves all of our affection and our obedience. And so we hunger for righteousness even as we hunger for truth. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, these two desires or commitments, love for truth and righteousness, partnered with deep roots in the Word of God. These are what will be used by the Holy Spirit to sustain all who suffer suffer through this incredibly awful period. It might not be the oldest ones among us. Could be those in our middle age, could be our children, could be grandchildren. But we know the scripture tells us it will eventually be so bad that this man who embodies lawlessness will have such demonically energized power that for a time, it will look like Satan is winning the battle for the earth. That is going to be... Can you, can you just imagine how dark that is? What that feels like? Like the only thing that's comparable for me is... When I lived in China and I didn't see the sun for like three months straight... You know, because of the pollution. It was just gray and smoggy and low-hanging every day. And there's something about the sun that really does lift your spirits, right? There's the light... When you live in darkness all the time, it weighs and it weighs and it weighs. And to just think about, what does it feel like to live in an environment that just feels dark? Everybody's love is growing cold around you. People are delighting in wickedness. They're advancing it. They have pleasure in it. Even part of the church is going to be promoting an agenda of wickedness. People are going to be betraying each other. How horrible is that going to feel? You're going to be persecuted and put to death because you love truth and righteousness. And it's gonna feel and it's gonna look like God's people are losing the battle. It's gonna look like Satan is winning the day on this earth. It's gonna be so dark for a season, says Jesus, that people will just, they'll be tempted to despair. Which is, I think, why, why Paul gives believers this most encouraging promise and picture to hold on to. He says, just when it looks like darkness is about to completely overtake the earth, Paul says in chapter one, Jesus will appear from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. The world will look dark and all of a sudden, whoosh! The clouds are rolled back. Stripped away. And whoo! There is Jesus Christ in blazing fire. With his holy angels. And Paul says, with one breath, and by the splendor of his coming, Jesus will eternally destroy and completely eradicate this man who looms so large and looks so big. One word, one breath, done. And so the encouragement, friends, is this, keep Jesus ever before you. Keep your eyes on the King, no matter how hard faithfulness to Him becomes. Make sure that Jesus Christ is right-sized before the eyes of your heart. And worship, worship, worship. Because worship will sustain you along with truth and love for righteousness to be his witness if God calls you or I to suffer through this season. Let me end with this. We've just watched how devastating it was for the people of Afghanistan and for all the foreign nationals inside of it to not have been warned about an impending U.S. withdrawal. To warn is to express Loving concern. This morning, God warns us because He loves us. Love the truth. Love righteousness. Keep the eyes of your heart on our King, Jesus Christ, in a posture of worship and trust, and God will sustain you through whatever winds come upon you, whether we're called to that, to suffer through that age, or just something that resembles it. Don't do these things and we will perish. He warns us because he loves us and he desires that none will perish. For some of you, I think that means a call to more intercession. I think a part of the work of the older believers among us is the work of interceding for younger believers to sustain, to sustain as the winds pick up. And so I don't know what that looks like, if it's personal or corporate, but I just feel compelled to to speak that word to the older believers among us. It's prayer for your children, it's prayer for your grandchildren, it's prayer for the church and for your children in the faith to stay strong in truth, righteousness, and worship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though you may call us or allow us to suffer hardship or persecution for the name of Jesus, you never leave us. You never forsake us. And you give us every means of grace needed to not just sustain, but to shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. And I pray now, Father, for all who are included in this church and in the families and the members of this church, that we will indeed be a people who love truth, righteousness, and are filled with worship for our King Jesus. Not only ourselves love those things, but who turn many others to the truth. Daniel said, those, those who turn many to truth will shine and I pray, God, that we would be a church of people who shine because we turn others to the, tr- to the truth. We, ha- we snatch them from the fire, as Jude says. And so, God, I pray that you'd set a fire in our hearts, even though it doesn't maybe look like we're near that season yet, to prepare for days ahead. Pray this in the enabling grace and help Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.